I'm Ben Shaw, and you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Now, what would you do if you were headed towards Cape Horn and knew a storm with 50-knot winds and 18-foot waves was headed directly your way? Ryan Finn found himself in just that situation as he headed into the Southern Ocean. Fortunately, he had a very fast boat, a 36-foot proa sailboat named Jezero, and he decided he'd try to outrun the blow. In January of this year, Ryan departed from New York aboard his boat, and after roughly 90 days at sea, he arrived here in San Francisco via Cape Horn. So he did, in fact, outrun that storm. He faced multiple challenges, including those storms, broken gear that required stops in Brazil and Patagonia, and most frustrating calms in the Pacific as he neared San Francisco. Now, this isn't the first time I've had Ryan on the show He attempted the same passage in 2021, and I spoke to him just before he took off on that attempt and right after he came back because he had hit something not long after departing that put a hole in one of his hulls. But he pulled it off on this second attempt, and he tells us all about the trip and about adjusting to life back ashore. So here we go. Ryan, thank you for joining again. And and let's start this off with a congratulations. I missed you when you were here in San Francisco. You were back in uh, New Orleans, correct? Yeah, yeah. I came back pretty quickly. I, I thought I would want to hang out there longer than I actually did. Once I, once I got on land and got cleaned up, I was like, I just want to go home and lay down for a second. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do want to talk about that transition, but first let's talk about the voyage. Yeah. Um, so you set off from New York to, tra- mm-hmm. to sail around the Horn to San Francisco, and you did that successfully. And how long? How long was the trip overall? Overall, it was uh, 93 days. Um, I had intended to do it nonstop, but I had in the North Atlantic, I ended up having a lot of equipment problems pretty early on to the point where I was like, I really should pull over in Brazil and, and um, get some of this stuff sorted out. One of them was the uh, wind instrument for the uh, autopilot had failed. And I was like, I really want to have a working wind instrument for sailing around Cape Horn. Mm. Um, the other was I had, I had this, I had some sail, some sa- failure of my number two jib and I built that sail and I saw some, I could see in the number one head sail that it was had, I, I could see that it was probably going to have the same problem with the very top seam. And so I was like, you know what, I've got a handful of things I need to sort out. I'm just going to, I'm not going to make this a, a, a nonstop thing anymore because um, I should be so lucky to make it around Cape Horn in one piece. You know what I mean? Yeah. Was that a decision you had to agonize over? Because that was Definitely. something that you had talked about and thought about a lot, I imagine, doing it nonstop. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and what's really annoying is that if it had been one of those issues, I, I wouldn't have stopped. But if it was those two, those two crowning issues, I was like, all right, I'm going to stop. But I ended up not getting the wind instrument in Brazil anyway, because <laughs> It ended up being stalled and shipping and customs there for so long that I was, they, they just sent it back. To, oh man. 
I was like, I have wait, I wasted a bunch of time in Brazil waiting, just waiting for that. And that was, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? But um, right. it was pretty frustrating. I mean, being in a paradise, but only being there to wait for a part, it's, it's not like I was hanging out. You know what I mean? It's just frustrating. Oh, that must have been super frustrating. I mean, you were able to solve the other issue, I imagine, but then you had made this decision to stop. And one of the two reasons that you had decided that yeah. wasn't resolved. Yeah, no. And, and I, I use that time to really, you know, I put in, I had some extra data cable and I really did some, you know, in nice, you know, in-house soldering and fixing of stuff. But um, even that didn't last for very long. I know this wasn't your first attempt. You had taken off previously and and I think you hit something or you had damage to one of the holes on the on the proa, correct? Yeah, the first the first attempt I started almost a, exactly a year after or before the one that I just just started. But um the first attempt was like less than 24 hours into it, about 20 hours into it. Uh, as I was entering the Gulf Stream um, from the, you know, from, from, from the north, I basically, the, the underwing panel of the, of the, the sort of buoyancy pod to leeward um, failed completely and just came blowing in after, when I slammed into the back of a wave going like 18 or 19 knots, you know. Oh, gosh. And a ton of water came in, but it was above the waterline, so I was able to sort of cobble something together it was like a one foot by one foot hole i was able to seal it up with epoxy and wood screws and some spare wood and you know i had a saw on board and then i basically limped into virginia once i was in virginia i was talking to russell brown about what how to haul the boat out and do the repair at this guy and he's the designer of the boat right yeah russell's the designer and the builder so russell was like he says, just, go, just bring it to my parents' house. He told me how to take it apart. And then he called me back. He's like, don't, don't do it. It's going to be a pain in the ass. He's like, just bring it to my parents' house. Because his parents live in Virginia and Mob Jack, up Mob Jack Bay, the East River, which just happens to be where Russell designed and built his very first pro and ran away from home when he was 16. So I brought the boat there and we hauled the boat out. You know, we hauled the boat out on the land in, in, in spring. And then he... Uh, he flew over and we fixed it. You know, that's right. awesome. Can't can't imagine somebody better than the than the designer and the builder to help you fix yeah. the boat. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, that was really fortunate and strangely lucky that it happened so early on. You know, I mean, this could have happened anywhere. Right. I don't want to go into talking too much about the pro because last time we spoke, we went into detail about the the unique nature of this boat. You know doesn't have a front or a stern you you, you turn the rig around to, to tack but talk a little bit about how it sailed and how it did or didn't meet your expectations in sailing it around it became pretty quickly became apparent that the boat was too small for what i was doing once i was in the north atlantic because i was just on i was just reaching jib close close jib reaching for uh days on end dude you know thousands of miles and it's just really rough out there <laughs> so it's like i was like i need a bigger boat this thing is way too violent you know remind us how long she is 36 feet but she weighs 3200 pounds you know basically right. she, she weighs as much as a j24 and she's um, small she's narrow yeah and when you're averaging you know i, I was averaging like 10 and a half knots for the first 
five days or so. It was just really brutal. So I, I learned a lot about, I really, and I was slowing the boat down, honestly. I was, I really was trying to keep, you know, protect the underwing, which had failed uh, on my first attempt and keep it from getting slammed. Because when you're reaching it, really, um, the boat just takes a beating, you know, because, you know, they're short, short, little crappy Atlantic waves. They're, they're close together and they're like 10 feet, you know, eight to 10 feet. You know, it's just pretty rough. It's violent. And that's, I, I had already sailed the boat 11,000 miles. So I knew that it's just like, it, I was like, this is going to be a long trip. You know what I mean? What would you compare the movement to? Is it more like a multi-hull, a catamaran or more like a mono-hull? I mean, it's kind of somewhere. In between. Oh, it's definitely a multi-hull. I mean, it's definitely because you're going fast. You're going really fast for, yeah. the, for the size. You know what I mean? And, and the motion, you know, the motion is that of a, um, of a multi-hull. You know, it doesn't have, you can tell there's no keel, you know, the boat is very light and very active. You know, it's sort of funny because up, upwind, it sort of has some monohull characteristics, but off the wind, it's a multi-hull. I mean, and downwind, it feels like, you know, it, because it's got those V-hulls, it feels like you're sailing, you know, like a Hobie 16. It loves to surf like a Hobie. <laughs> yeah, that was my, one of my first boats. Loved sailing that. Dude, that is an awesome, awesome design, the Hobie 16. <laughs> Yeah. I, I still love that bro. so you i remember you talking about it being light and basically going over the waves and, and that was part of the attraction for you was the speed no it is it it, it is and it was and, and and you know i don't know if you want to get to it now but i'm i'm convinced that that's how i got around cape horn so so safely well what challenges did you face in the atlantic before getting before we get to cape horn um you you pulled in in brazil yeah, so so you know, so I had to basically sail. I had to sail really far east, um, and I was, you know, there was a point when I was kind of pointing to Spain for a while before I tacked, because um, the trades just weren't weren't really settled in to a point where they're stable enough for me to to bear off early, you know. So I I had to go pretty pretty far. So I was really in the middle of the Atlantic before I tacked to head south across the trades. And that's kind of a funny like area to sail. And I've done transatlantics in the trades and, you know, and I saw a sailboat in the trades. <laughs> it was funny because we, he saw me first and I heard the radio go and I was like, and I called him and he's like, I was like, where are you going? And he's like, we're going to, uh, we're going to um, the Caribbean. I can't, I can't remember which Island he said. Uh-huh. I was like, I've done this route before. I was like, it's kind of crappy, huh? And he's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's like this is not what was in the brochure <laughs> he's like this was not in the brochure and you know he's like that's why we've got the head sail pulled out to leeward and we're, re we're reaching up you know with a reefed main because just i didn't think the the trade when atlantic route was that smooth and reaching across it's even worse you know what i mean it's rolling again it's it's short these sort of irregular waves that are close together you know yeah when I did the, the transatlantic, I did a transatlantic delivery from there, from the, exactly from on the course he was doing. And we stopped the wing on wing thing entirely and put up the spinnaker. You know, I was like, this is ridiculous. This wing on wing thing. I mean, the masthead is moving like 40 degrees. Mm. So, so like, so we put up the spinnaker and basically we would just jibe on the sea state. Sailing to the sea state. That's true ocean sailing. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, I was like, yep, this angle's funky. Let's jive, you know? It had nothing to do with anything but that, you know? So you got way out there in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, was he the only other boat you saw along the way? 
I think he was the only sailboat I saw. I mean, I saw so, and 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 so to, closing on the equator was really great. And I had you know I had like a two hundred and ninety nine mile day, and approaching the equator wow and, and and it was only blowing like 12 or 13 knots in flat water i was like this is what i need the whole time. what were you flying in terms of sails i don't know i think i was using a gentle like the the j1 or the j0 i've got a, a big sort of flat screecher type sail mm -hmm. um, and it was just perfect conditions for the boat i mean the boat was on fire in flat water you know it loves that it just yeah. loves it but i mean all all fast multi-holes love that you know right right and so you said it was interesting getting towards the equator. Yeah, getting getting across was light air and no problems with the doldrums there. And getting in, and along the coast of Brazil, I was doing a lot of jibing um, because I, I by that point I already knew I was stopping in Salvador de Bahia, and uh, and that was great. That was beautiful sailing there, flat water. You know, really, and I could definitely see that's a good cruising area. And that, I did see one sailboat there too. Did you know you were going to take off again and continue on the journey or did it ever cross your mind? Mm, maybe I'll try it again. No, 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 I, no. no I, I knew, I knew that was it. I was going to keep going. So you push off again from Brazil. Push off again from Brazil after giving up on my, on the FedEx there. And so, so leave there. And then about a day and a half into leaving uh, my water maker stopped making fresh water. And that was one of the big, the big changes from last year's attempt um, is that I had put a water maker on the boat. I, the, the first time I did it, I had attempted to bring all the water just because, you know, it's a shoestring budget. I remember and, that. Yeah, but you were worried about that in terms of weight. The boat's never been lighter for, for what I was doing. But anyway, the water, the water maker stopped working and I had to use that little hand pump life raft water maker. Sure. Uh, which is and Matt Rutherford talks about that going around. Dude, that is that is a real hate mission. I mean, oh my God. I even, you know, I didn't even tell, I haven't told anybody this, but I even was, I, I sat there after disassembling and reassembling the water maker like 12 times, trying to sort things out, changing out gaskets and basically anything I could. Uh, everything except for the membrane, which I didn't have a spare of. I was looking at the piston for the for the pump and I was like, I wonder if there's a way I can make the piston attach it to the handheld water maker so that I don't have to manually pump it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd, I'd gone through a million different things in my head to make that work. And I was like, this, I'm going to end up breaking the only water maker I have trying to make that work, you know, uh, but I didn't do it. So it was little hand handheld pumper, which what gives you a couple sips after a few different pumps. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I think it takes about 20 minutes to get about a cup of water. Oh. <laughs> well, you, you had your workout, your upper body workout for the rest of the trip. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm fully jacked. No, no. But, <laughs> but it's like, that's like, you know, it's like the celery problem. You're like, can you live on celery? I don't know. Oh, um, man. Yeah. You, I, and I stopped even filling up a cup. I just put the straw in my mouth and pump it for 20 minutes and then go to, to try to stay out of the sun you know that's another level i had a tarp on board for catching water and i finally was actually able to in one big rain shower huge i caught a ton i'd like got two or three gallons of water out of it by that point i already had arranged to get a new membrane and stuff in argentina and was close to argentina so i could have continued on i, I could have just used rainwater probably and the handheld pump but 
I don't didn't want to have to use the handheld pump for because I was pretty far away from San Francisco still at that point, you know. Mm -hmm. And I could already tell just from looking at my urine that I wasn't getting enough water. You know, you want water when you're out there. It's like more. It's more noticeable. I think it's more noticeable physiologically out there than it is on land. You know. What what did you, what was it doing to you? What did you feel? Headaches. It just. Uh. You just feel bad, especially when, when I was at first, when the water started getting saltier from the water maker, that felt terrible. And I spoke to, I spoke to a guy who, who he had lived on. I think they say you, you, you want to be below a thousand parts per million. Right. His water maker, it failed in the Pacific or stopped making really fresh water. And he was drinking 3000 parts per million. And he did that for like. I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks or a month. And he said he felt awful. So I knew that it was important to stop, you know, to get that shit resolved. So that was your second stop. You had already stopped. So it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of, of losing the nonstop. Um, exactly. Monica, yeah. but, but were you worried about time? Yeah. Cause you know, when I left, when I left Brazil, there was still a chance to, to beat the single handed record period, the speed, you know, even, even the 60 foot trimaran record. Right, which was forty something days. No, that was no, no. The the, the try the that the catamaran record is is forty five days, but that's with a full crew. There's only one person, the only one other person who's done it single handed, and that's um Philippe Monet, and he did it in a sixty foot trimaran in okay nineteen ninety and eighty nine or ninety, and he did it in what did he do it in? I think eighty one days. Got it. Something like that. Um, so there was a chance to beat that. And I knew that stopping was going to be a problem for that. But at that point, I, I was like, what I'm doing is crazy, man. And, and if I pull this off, you know, I'm going to tie this little ass boat, pretty unproven design as far as Western standards go. And I should just be humble and do anything I can to actually be able to complete this job. You know what I mean? I, mean, I think that's the, that's the right attitude, right? You, you're proving it to yourself that you can do this and staying yeah. alive is part of it yeah 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 and and i you know i was like and i already started thinking about another I, that i i knew by the time i got out of, out of the north atlantic i was like I, I knew i'd be willing to do this again so you're down there you stop in argentina you, you get the water maker fixed uh yeah i had some family bring down um flew down with a with a wind instrument because there was one in stock in the u.s and also with a watermaker membrane and some a seal kit, and they they came down, and I, I I wasn't allowed to get off the boat in Argentina because customs you can't clear in where I would where in in Mar del Plata. Okay. But they were able to sneak the parts out to the boat, basically. Hey, how's it going? Blah blah blah. Here's your shirt. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so I got, and I was able to get it working and sorted out. I think I was there for like six days, although it seemed like it wasn't that long. But according to my tracker, it was about six days of sitting there getting everything reinstalled and then waiting for you know once it was proven to work and everything i was able to leave once the weather shit changed the next day so i stopped there and then departed again and by that point things stopped becoming really easy as far as sailing goes the wind became a lot more regular and a lot later a lot the forecast really fell apart getting to mar del plata was very difficult Basically, from there on, the, the weather forecasts were almost useless, honestly, in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah a lot of light air, a lot more light air than forecasts. Um, you know, and when it showed light air, when it would be like, oh, you'll have 
seven knots of wind, six knots of wind, it would be zero. And in the Atlantic side, it wasn't a big problem because that would last for a couple hours. Um, on the Pacific side, it was a lot more of a problem. And that's actually where, as I was sailing south towards um, the Straits of La Mer, uh, I really started getting cold feet, honestly. Um, and I had people contacting me and being like, listen, you don't have to do this. It's, you've already proven, you're, you've already proven, you've already done something really cool. You can, you don't have to do it. And I started trying, sort of talking myself into, into bailing out um, because there was a storm basically coming from the Southern Ocean across Chile and, and then reforming and the, it was going to reform in the Atlantic. It was going to have like 50 knots with 18 foot waves and it was pr looking pretty bad. I was already thinking about pulling out there as I, and by that point I was, I was north, I was still north of the Falkland Islands on the, on my way to the Straits of La Mer, uh -huh. which is uh, the Eastern tip of Tierra de Fuego and then really kind of the entrance to Cape Horn. What happened was I, I, I spoke to, um, I spoke to my girlfriend. I spoke to Russell. My girlfriend just, she's like, you, you, she really wanted me to do it. And Russell, Russell was, sounded nothing but confident in me. And the boat and um and commanders I, I, I contacted reached out to commanders weather my friend kip had set up an account with them and and i reached out to commanders and they were like yeah go for it but they're always kind of like yeah go for it because they're, they're <laughs> sitting they're sitting in the office you know it's like yeah, right, right. Fine. yeah well this looks fine you should be fine i'm like and and they're forecasting 50 knots you're saying what, what? well they, they were saying i should be able to escape it i should be able to get okay one. and so and and then I then I was able then I was able to finally download a file for that that whole region and and ran the models even with worst case scenarios of being becalmed because it showed light air before the this before the the wind filled in from the north and so I worst case scenarioed it and it showed that I would I should be able to make it and I did and I, I pushed pretty hard there and I was doing a lot of a lot of twenty three knots of boat speed at that point surfs and stuff. Wow. Even to the point where, and then, but then it became an issue of once I got, I was clear of that north, basically it was going to be the northern, the northern part of the storm that was going to have the 50 knots and the, the huge waves. But by the time I was approaching uh, the Straits of La Mer, the sea state had really stacked up and were breaking and there were like 12, 15 foot waves, but they were really close together, close enough that they're breaking. I don't think that I would have been able to sail reach in those waves. I don't think it would have been safe to even even try to reach. You know, I think maybe maybe you could sail upwind, uh, but you can definitely sail downwind, on, on, especially on Jezero. But um, reaching would have been really dangerous. I think those straits, right off the tip of Tierra del Fuego, there, the wind's dead behind you going through there between yeah. Staten Island. Yeah, exactly. And and I was early, and I and that's apparently a place that you really want to time the tide with. So I, I was early, and and so I had to slow down after I had been going so fast. I had to slow the boat down, but I was still doing like, I mean, for a while I, I took the sails down completely, even took the gaff batten down from the main, oh. and I was still doing ten knots because of those waves were so steep. You know, I was still averaging like nine, ten knots with no sails. <laughs> just surfing down waves. Yeah, just straight up surfing. And the nice thing about a, a proa is that the stern is the bow, right? Yeah. So you, it's like when the waves do come, even if they're breaking, they're they're hitting the bow. But then also, the boat accelerates so quickly down them that it does. There's the impact's very low. You know. It's like surfing a canoe down the waves. Exactly. It's totally that. But the timing worked out perfectly, and I then I got across there downwind, 
in medium wind. I think it was maybe blowing 15, 20. I couldn't see anything in there. It's just all I could see was uh, the wave, the, the waves breaking around me and phosphorescence from that. That was it. And how far is that from Cape Horn? That's like a hundred miles or a little over a hundred miles. And, and I actually was considering going to Cape Horn at that point, but I had already, I'd already planned to, to anchor at um, Puerto Espanol, which is, uh, which was going to, which is 70 miles from Cape Horn. I was kind of had the urge to go around Cape Horn that night, but I was so tired. And I was like, this, I mean, this probably isn't a great decision to make right now. Yeah. So I pulled in and anchored as, as I had planned on to wait for a weather window that was, that looked better. How long did you have to be at anchor there? I was there for six days. Oh man. A weather window did come up and I was able to get around, but after, after getting totally free of, of Chile, I realized I probably could have continued going and, and I probably didn't have to stop. I just learned a lot about the forecasts for that area, mm-hmm. how, they, how they operate and what their, what their level of accuracy is and also how the, what I can get away with on Jezero, you know. The round in the horn once, what just wet your appetite? Kind of. I mean, you know, it's like you do it and then you learn, you know, you really get a feel for something and then you're like, well, I can definitely see how I can see how to do this again better. It's inevitable, dude. It's always like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> no matter how bad it is. Cape Horn is such an Everest for sailors. You know, it's it's always looming out there. Yeah. What was that feeling after having done it? Well, I mean, you know, you definitely get the feeling that 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 it's one of those places that you feel like it's looking, it's, it's observing you. You know what I mean? I mean, I thought I really did sort of have the approach to Cape Horn. My approach was kind of like, I'm going to be very, I'm, I'm going to be prepared to stop and anchor and wait for a weather window up to a week. I sort of gave myself a week window to do that. If I didn't like it, I'd turn around and go back. And I thought my approach to getting around, it was like, I'm going to sneak through here. You know, I'm just going to sneak out, but you definitely, get the feeling that you're being observed the there's time. no sneaking there's no sneaking out i mean it's like it definitely feels like you are you're in the dragon's den wow it definitely you feel you it's absolutely how it felt it's like you know i felt like a little a little elf or something in a dragon den and i'm like oh, i gotta get the hell out of here <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> leave it in your rear view mirror <laughs> oh yeah absolutely and and then it, that part takes a long time it's you know yeah that's i mean i was gonna ask about you you know you're around the horn but it's still you've got quite a uh, journey ahead of you up to san francisco what was that like yeah i mean and i rounded the horn you know i rounded at night like and it's it's pitch black and I, all i saw were the they've two lighthouses on Cape Horn. I didn't see any, I didn't see the rock at all. And I was pretty close to it too. But you know, the, the problem with the weather down there, again, the forecasts are terrible. It, it was raining, it was drizzling or raining the whole time. And you know, you're becalmed a lot. I was becalmed a lot. And, and, and there was basically not much in between being becalmed and then being in a gale mm. in some sort of storm, no matter what the forecast was. If it showed medium wind, like when I arrived, when I sailed into Puerto Espanol to anchor, the forecast was for 12 knots. 12 knots, no big deal. By the time I got to the anchorage, I was doing, I was hauling ass with a tiny bit of mainsail up. You know, it was basically gusting 35 by the time I had the anchor out and set 
and 10 minutes later it's gusting in the 40s wow. you cannot rely on weather forecasts you can kind of use them as a as a guide as a handrail but that's it so that's basically what i did around got around cape horn and and, and sailed in in a lot of light finicky air and then basically had to get through one weather front which had about i think the the most wind i saw in that was up to 40 and that was upwind to get through that and then i was gonna say this has got to be mostly upwind because you're fighting the westerlies now right 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 and then it was sort of downwind to to get out of there because you now as as when you once you get through the front you have a you have southerly wind right because it's clockwise mm-hmm. so um and then i was heading north and then there were going to be two big fronts coming that were close together. And the second one of those two was going to be big time, not a bad, not a, not a good storm at all. And uh, I never, ever considered going back and anchoring anywhere along the Chilean. That would be crazy. The charts I had weren't detailed enough to show me anything that looked even remotely safe, especially without an engine, you know? Okay. I was like, all right, I got to get out of here. I can either go back around Cape Horn and just get the hell out of here or and go north and keep going to san francisco and so what i what i did just from looking at the modeling enough and feeling confident enough in at least the timing of this front was to go through the first front which again had it was gusting you know 40 in the 40s low 40s and get through that front and then transition directly into uh a downwind run north as fast as possible so basically what i did coming into the straits of la mer but heading north this time and, and and getting and then getting getting really far north and escaping the second front, which had which was again a fifty plus knot storm, but this one had the forecast was for twenty eight foot waves, thirty foot waves average. Wow! But you can't. I mean, the coast of Chile down down there really runs northwest. Right. You can't sail too far north without starting to get close to land. I'd imagine. Sure. I mean, I was. I, yeah, I was by the time when I made my move to get through the, the, the front, that would be what I used to escape this, the, 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 this, the third storm in the Pacific that I had to deal with. Yeah. Um, I was like 30 miles off the coast. But once I had, once I had made it through that front, I was pretty far offshore by then. Okay. Because <clears throat> so, I really just was making my move west, you know? Yeah. And so then I basically just um, hauled ass downwind again. And really, really was pushing the boat pretty hard, doing three a bunch of three hundred mile, you know, averaging three hundred miles a day for a while, and to get out of there. And um, and I and I made it out. I escaped the second storm. Came in right underneath me, you know, right underneath. And and it was really obvious once I was out, you know, it was really clear that it was going to be easy from that point on. Well, you know, compared to what I'd been doing. Right. You felt like you were out of the dragon's lair. <laughs> totally. I mean, you're out of the, the truth. I mean, you're you're out of the Southern Ocean at that point. Yeah, yeah. But I have to, you know, they say they say you know you want it, you a, a proper Cape Horn rounding is 50 degrees south in the Atlantic to 50 degrees south in the Pacific, and I had to go up to like 30. I had to go way north of that to get free. You know. Mm. But once I was out, the sun came out, and uh, and it was downwind for like 12 days with the same sails up after that. Nice. And did you have to go steer way out into the Pacific and then angle back towards San Francisco or what was your route coming up? It was pretty close to Rumline. It was pretty close to get to the, to get to the doldrums was near Rumline. Hmm. So that, that you didn't have any more stops then until you got here. Right, right. 
and talk a little bit about that approach. You had you had thought you were going to come in well, a day I'll, before I'll, you did, right? Well, I'll, I'll talk to you about like probably the thing that sticks out for me as the hardest part of this trip was the Pacific doldrums. Mm. Were the worst. They were the worst. I mean, that was insane. Five, it took me five days to do 550 miles. Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I had two days where I, was, I think the, the, I only made 50 miles, and, you know, and that is insanely frustrating. Especially when you're getting closer to the I, finish line. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what made it worse. I think if that happened in the Atlantic, I'd be, I would have been like, oh, well, I'll be philosophical about it. But I was, it was a, a real challenge to get through that, man. What did you do? What were your strategies? I mean, you know, it, it's, I would download, I downloaded, definitely downloaded more weather files there than anywhere during the whole trip. I thought you were going to say movies. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I, I wish I had that kind of thing. <laughs> no, um, but I, you know, and then I'd run models and they'd say, go way west. And then I'd, two hours later, it'd say, go way east. It would, and it would flip flop back and forth like that every time. The only thing that was consistent was that it was going to fill in from the east. If there's going to be any wind, it was going to be from the east. And so I, I just was like, I'm not going west. That's for sure. I'm just going to put all my eggs in the east basket. And, and I just favored that side of the course. And it did slowly, you know, slowly filled in. Um, you know, I knew I was out once, once because sometimes it would be, there would be a little bit of wind during the daytime. And thank God Jazeera was quick and light air. I mean, I would still be going, you know, double wind speed when it was blowing like four you it's know, all relative, right? You're frustrated at your slow progress, even though you're making yeah, progress. It, other it, boats would call slow. It's like every night, every night would be dead. It'd be becalmed dead. I mean, if you looked at my track, if my track is insane on that part of the trip, there, I, I would cross my own path many several times, or get just drifting around on the current. Oh. And I knew that I was out when I, I was able to get through one whole night without having that happen. That's nice. It makes for sleepless nights too, I'd imagine, if you're up trying yes. to catch any little breeze that there is. Yeah, yeah. There's tons of tons of activity on deck. How did you manage your sleep? And how, how did that work out for you? I would you know, in the in, in the Atlantic and near you know, near coastlines and stuff, I got I was really strict about the 15, 20 minute naps routine. I, I was a lot more lax about it in the Pacific and I've, I've done, I've, I've sailed a lot of this course, you know, I've sailed down to Brazil and I've sailed up from, from Valparaiso to Panama and I've done the whole Panama to California and the other way around and up to Washington. So I've, I'm pretty familiar with that course. And I knew that there just was not a lot of traffic in the Pacific. And so I, I, I didn't do the, the 20 minutes thing. I, I would, Sometimes I would just go to sleep and wake up whenever I felt the boat do something, you know? Yeah. Well, for the 15, 20 minute thing, would you put an egg time? How did you wake yourself up every 15 Oh man, minutes? phones, phones. I've got like, I had like six phones on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> you kept putting that alarm louder and louder. Yeah. yeah. I would change the alarm. I, I would change up. I would change it up every once in a while. Cause I was like, I'm getting too used to this one. <laughs> I'm ignoring it. We'll talk about that arrival. Um, the arrival was again, you know, it, it was it, the forecast was for much more wind than I had on the arrival, and, and I ended up getting becalmed like 50 miles from our, from uh, from San Francisco. I got completely stopped. And oh, talk about frustrating. Yeah, I drifted for a while, and so and I knew my family was my family was there, and and friends were there, and everybody's 
bugging me about like when are you getting in dude how long is the string you know it's a sailboat dude so <laughs> and i'm having to explain that to so many people and also i really wanted to arrive during the daytime and it looked like i was going to arrive at noon and then i was becalmed that the night uh, before that and then the next day i was like i have no idea when i'm coming in but as i get once i'm two hours away i'll, I'll let you guys know and fortunately i was able to sort of um broad reach in and get in right around sun you know before sunset or like an hour before sunset and it was beautiful and san francisco is such a cool place to arrive to man. it's such like a piece of eye candy as far as the city cities go or bays go you know because you can look 360 degrees and there's stuff to look at you know yeah it's a nice place to show up and, and i came under the bridge it was you know the golden hour of light so the golden gate bridge looks was very cool to look at and then there was a whale there was a uh a humpback whale in front of me as i as i sailed past the city front you know how perfect oh, that's yeah. awesome well there's some great pictures on your facebook uh two oceans one rock right yep that's it um of you arriving with the, the bridge in the background and alcatraz in the background and the city yeah, yeah. in the background yeah yeah yeah, and I, dude, I didn't see a whale when I was in the whole the whole Pacific Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> it was the welcoming committee. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you wrote a little bit about this on the blog, but the question of switching your mind to think about what's next is is not an easy one. It takes a second, man, and it's just like planning your day is really weird on land, you know. Because on, on offshore, your your day is set up. It's it's going to be navigation, eating, sleeping, sail sail handling. Pretty simple. No matter how hard it is, it, the difficulty levels go up and down, and, it, and there may be a lot of boredom in between. But um, it's pretty set, and you get into routine, and it's it's just a hard transition back to to land. And uh, you know, a lot of guys. And I've had some friends. You know, like uh, Bruce Schwab. Commented and was he'd done the Vendée Globe and he'd mm -hmm. done some, so he he knew exactly what this was like and and actually I'd been speaking with this guy George who um, had done the record with Steve Pettengill in a sixty foot trimaran in in eighty nine after Warren Lures and and Courtney Hazelton and Bergstrom got it on on Thursday's Child right they came in on a trimaran and he told he said he sent me an email after he read that post and was telling me that he stayed on his boat at a mooring for like weeks. <laughs> yeah. And to he try and make that, it's kind of like decompression chamber. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I think people who've done it understand. So where's your head at now? Well, I mean, I, I feel like writing that, it, I hadn't noticed that I was feeling that way until I started writing. Then once I wrote it down, I was like, there was something freeing about that that's mm. sort of motivating saying it out loud helped me sort of understand what i have to do next and i already have yeah i've got things in the work but it's just a matter of uh getting off the boat getting your feet on the ground and making all putting all this stuff together so well in the post you write about selling the boat selling the yeah. to zero so i imagine whatever's in the works is either on a different boat? Absolutely. I mean, um, I would like, I mean, you know, this is an ideal world, right? 
my ideal world, uh, I would like to do, I'd like to build a bigger proa to do the record again. Yeah. But I want a bigger one and I want to do it. I want it to be twice as fast. Very cool. I have complete faith in the, in the design concept. You know, there's obviously a lot that you would have to do differently. Not everything on Jazeera scales up, but the basic platform would be really similar. Um, sale handling would be a lot different. It would be a lot more, um, I don't want to call it handicapped, but uh, it'd be simplified just because you're it's on a bigger boat, you're single-handed. But I mean, you know, if the, the, the scale of the proa that I don't think a lot of people uh, fully grasp is like the scale of it. It's a 36 foot boat, right? A 36 foot trimaran will have a pretty tall mast and Jezero's mast is only 36 feet tall, right? Hmm. So it's like, it's basically got the sail area, this is the main sail of a F-24 and your sails aren't really that much bigger in general. Interesting. So if you build a 70 foot proa, you know, you would have, you'd have the sail area of a, basically a 45 foot trimaran. So it's fair to say that after this trip, you're even more a fan of the proa. You're Absolutely. Convinced yeah. of its of its properties. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I, I I don't think by the time I'd started, I, I already was aware that it was a concept that needed to be developed. I just don't I don't I don't think it, I couldn't have pitched I couldn't have pitched a, a big proa and gotten any any interest in it. I couldn't even pitch a small pro and get anybody sponsorship interested in it. I think everybody thought I was going to die. I didn't. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> You've proved the concept now. Proved the concept. And, and also uh, I demonstrated that speed is safety. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You talked about that twice getting in front of storms. Yeah, you know. I can't can't emphasize it enough. I mean, if I was on what most people consider to be a seaworthy boat, like, oh, you should take my Hans Christian, that boat, yeah. I could I could see definitely doing a three sixty. In a lot of situations, I wouldn't have been able to get away from. You would have been walloped. You might have been, you know, you might have survived in a sturdier boat, but you would have you would have been uh, at the mercy of the weather. Yeah, yeah, and I and I I, I bet you I wouldn't be trying to come back. <laughs> anything ryan that you want to say about the trip or or next steps or anything we haven't covered no not really i just you know i just think i went out i demonstrated what i wanted to the whole idea from the get-go was to prove that a, a, a big pro could do uh, something really really demanding or even a small pro could do something very demanding because the whole origin story of, of my getting into pros at all was that I, I was thinking about a boat that could beat the east to west around the world nonstop record. I have to, you know, unless you want to do a 90 foot monohull, I, I don't think there's a multi-hull that's that out there that can, that can handle that much abuse upwind, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was like, what, what kind of multi-hull would do it? And that's smaller than, than a 90 foot monohull cheaper and i was thinking oh a, a pro can probably do it i think it's time to show support for that kind of uh for that kind of ancient technology and and bring it into the 21st century you know i watch with a lot of interest as you continue to prove the pro and uh see where it goes from here and congratulations again thank you <clears throat> on, on the trip i'm proving the concept and um Good luck with whatever's next. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.
That's it for this episode. You can find updates from Ryan on Facebook at Two Oceans, One Rock. That's the number two. Ocean spelled out the number one and rock. So all together, Two Oceans, One Rock. As always, I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Thanks for listening. You can reach me on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing or you can email me at OutTheGateSailing at gmail.com. Until next time, smooth sailing.